Welcome to Alma Matters, where sports, smarts, and life after McGill come together in one great conversation, led by your host, Earl Zuckerman. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Earl the Pearl Zuckerman. Thanks for joining us today on Alma Matters. In each episode, we'll speak with prominent members of our alumni about their McGill experience and how it has impacted their lives and careers. Alma Matters is presented by the Redbird Sports Shop, the official retail store of McGill Athletics and Recreation. Shop for McGill Apparel at redbirdsportshop.ca. With us, our special guest today is Richard Pound, uh, one of our more esteemed athletes who's gone on to quite a, a career, and uh, we'll get right into that, uh, Dick. Um, uh, the first question I have is, you were born in St. Catharines, Ontario, but was McGill on your radar at all, or at what point Ontario, but was McGill on your radar at all, or at what point did you just say, uh, that's the school I want to go to? Well, I'm uh, the only person in uh, in our family that ever been to university was my father, and he was a, Queen, a Queens graduate, and uh, he was he did his engineering there. Uh, we were living in Montreal at the time, and uh, I think uh, living in a city where you have this fantastic university uh, among the two or three others at the time, but uh, certainly McGill was a a leading uh, educational institution. I had already decided that I didn't want to be an engineer because my father was a great engineer, but his reward was to live in all these stinking towns hundreds of miles from anywhere. So I said, engineering is not for me if that's the reward you get. And and uh, I settled on, on becoming a, what was called at the time, a chartered accountant. And I pursued that. Uh, I pursued commerce uh, when I got to McGill in in the fall of uh, 1958. And uh, what led you to law? I mean, uh, commerce and law. Exactly through the uh, the accounting uh, program and and, all, and the other subjects that I took. I thought, you know, one of these days, maybe just being a chartered accountant is not going to be enough, and I, I need some edge against obsolescence, if you want to call it that. The two sort of preferred options were to either do an MBA or to uh, study law. And I rather liked the idea of being a professional, so I, I, I opted for law. And uh, as soon as I finished my CA, I enrolled uh, in, in the Faculty of Law at McGill. And... Uh, and, and graduated in law. You're an author of several books on legal history in Canada. Uh, you wrote one on the uh, Supreme Court. I'm just wondering, with the current political climate that we have in, in the United States, uh, with the appointment of a new conservative justice in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that gives them a six, I think it's a 6-3 split uh, with the uh, uh, the justices in favor of uh, leading to the right. I'm, and there's been a lot of discussion that the Democrats will attempt to add uh, extra justices to the nine-member panel, maybe make it 11 or 12 or 13, so that they have uh, a closer split than 6-3 on, on most votes that might come up. Just wondering what you think about the concept of adding more justices uh, to the Supreme Court to create a, a more balanced panel between the liberals and the conservatives. I think that's a huge danger to the uh, 
the whole concept of uh, the rule of law, and, and it politicizes uh, the highest court in the land in the United States. And I think that's a very, very bad development. What you hope is that uh, the judges, when they hear cases, decide them on the basis of the law and not on their political affiliations. So I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, once you get a lifetime appointment, you're not beholden to anyone and you should be free. And that was the whole concept of, uh, you know, lifetime appointments. You should be free to decide cases on the basis of the law and not be subject to any political pressures in reaching mm -hmm. your decision. So I, I hope the, uh, the judges that are on the court will decide cases according to the law, and I hope that the Democrats, uh, if uh, if they win, uh, do not complete the politicization of the court. Okay, I have one other sort of related question to that uh, legal situation in the, in the Supreme Court down south is. And I realize you're not on the U.S. Supreme Court. Maybe it works a little differently in Canada. But how conceivable is that the, the infamous Roe versus Wade case on the woman's right to choose? Uh, how conceivable is that, that that actually be heard by the Supreme Court? Don't there would have to be a case uh, decided in the lower court, uh, one way or another, either purporting to overrule uh, the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade, or or. Uh, uh, simply applying Roe versus Wade, and, and there may be some argument that has not yet been considered by the Supreme Court uh, that would affect its uh, constitutionality. But it, no, a case right. has to come to the court, and the court has to agree to hear it. Great. So that they can't just arbitrarily overturn a decision made by the Supreme Court in previous years? No, not, not without a case that raises right. uh, the, the particular point. And, and the highest courts in the land... You know, they, things evolve over time, less so in the States than in Canada. But, uh, you know, we had the, the assisted suicide case, uh, you know, Sue Rodriguez many years ago. And, you know, things changed uh, after 25 years. And the Supreme Court heard another similar case and, and acknowledged that the law and society had changed and, and that, that uh, they rule that, that was sound, legally sound, a quarter of a century ago. Uh, needed a new look. Right. Okay. Uh, so uh, I want to go back to your uh, McGill athletic career. Now, you had been a swimmer for, I guess, quite some time before uh, uh, you got to McGill, uh, out west, especially with that swim club in, in BC, uh, which has produced a, a lot of Olympians. So when you went to McGill, were you, did you already know that you were going to be swimming for the team? Was this uh, a plan that you had in place, or you just came out? tried out and made the team and went from there <laughs> well it was it was um, it was interesting I mean the only sport at which I was any good was swimming uh, but mind you it was you know age group swimming at, at that point but uh, when we spent our year in, in three rivers my father commuted back and forth on business uh, he was in charge of the the newsprint aspects of the of the mill in three rivers. And I read in, in, I guess it was probably the Montreal Gazette about a swimming meet at McGill University sponsored by the Martlett Foundation. Hmm. And it was open to high, it was a high school swimming meet. So I asked my father if he was going to be in Montreal on that particular weekend. And he said, well, I, I can be. So I 
entered uh, out of the blue and showed up at Sir Arthur Curry Pool, uh, unknown to anybody in Montreal and, and anywhere, anyone in Quebec, and um, ended up uh, winning uh, the 50-yard freestyle event at, uh, that surprised uh, everyone. And we knew that uh, that summer we would be moving from Three Rivers to uh, Montreal. So when I got to Montreal, one of the first things I did was go to the MAA on Peel Street and and say that I was I'd you know done some swimming in Ocean Falls and I would uh, love to compete uh, for the MAA before going to McGill. And the swimming coach was hugely unimpressed, and he said, "Well, get get your suit on and let's have a look at you." And so I changed, and he said, "Do a few lengths." So I did a few lengths, and uh, he said, "Well, that that's not the way we swim here in in <laughs> Montreal." And I said, "Well, uh, is there a practice today for your team? Because maybe I'll hang around and uh, and see whether I'm uh, as fast as they are." Uh, practice occurred and uh, I, I was able to beat everybody. So he said, oh, all right, uh, I guess we have to take you even with your your different stroke uh, compared to what we do in Montreal. And uh, that's how I got started uh, at the MAA. And then uh, during the summer, I swam for the MAA. And, it, you know, September when we went enrolled at McGill, um, I tried out for the uh, McGill team and and uh, made that and spent probably seven or eight years as in intercollegiate swimming, uh, all told. And went on to obviously a, a, a good swimming career as a Canadian uh, champion, Olympian, and uh, the 1960 Summer Games in Rome. Um, did did your were you able to modify your uh, your stroke or did you go with the same style and it just worked for you? Uh, I. I I don't want to sound pretentious, but uh, our strokes are better than the Montreal strokes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying the BC when you say our strokes? I mean, the uh, what you learned in yeah, the BC? Yeah, no, what, what we learned. We, we had a, a fabulous coach in, in Ocean Falls who eventually, oddly enough, ended up in, in uh, Point Claire when they got their new 50-meter pool leading up to the uh, Montreal Games. And uh, he produced some, uh, some Olympic medalists uh, out of Point Claire. And he was very, very good. And who was that? Was that the one that was on the national team until a couple of years ago? Uh, no, it was a fellow called George Gate. Oh, uh, yes. I know, I know. In, this, in this little Ocean Falls pool, I mean, we had maybe 300 kids in the, in the entire town. But from 1948 until 1976, there was at least one swimmer from Ocean Falls on every Olympic, Commonwealth, and Pan American Games team out of that little talent pool I, and it was I believe only the, a pool it was it was not not a big pool yeah and I, I believe the pool in Point Claire is now named after George Gate I think uh, um, I think you may be right and yeah. if it's not it should be <laughs> yeah I think it is because uh, our current swim coach at McGill uh, Peter Carpenter uh, mentioned that uh, when he was growing up swimming he met George Gate at the Point Claire pool and George Gate ended up hiring him and he said he was like a mentor to him so uh he oh, was still he was, around he was. Yeah. 
So uh, off, uh, off you go though to the uh, the Olympics. And uh, what was uh, we, we? I think I've discussed this with you in the past, but for the sake of our audience here, um, the what was the experience of being an Olympic athlete at the Rome Olympics in 1960 like? Oh, uh, it, it was life changing. I'd say. I mean, I, I had never been uh, to Europe, and and I remember we the the team assembled in Montreal, and we. We took a the first sort of non-stop flight between Montreal and, and Rome. And I remember, you know, as we came down through the clouds um, into the um, the airport in Rome, say, oh, my God, there is a Colosseum. <laughs> there is a Vatican. We'd, we'd seen pictures of it, but uh, I'd never never been to Europe. So it was it was pretty exciting. And, and uh, when you're, you're sort of part of history both uh, both good and bad and uh, it was it was very special great weather great facilities and a great and competition and life in the village that was uh like that's supposed to be the be all and end all uh, you hear that a lot about the olympians of today about how much they enjoyed the village life in the olympic village what what was that like for you were you in a special segregated village or did you guys uh, go to hotels or how did that work in that era no, they had a, uh, an Olympic village, and, and the only segregation uh, in those days was to between the boys and the girls, and uh, mainly to keep the, the boys out of the girls' quarters, I think. And uh, but it was a, an overall village, and we all ate together, and and uh, you know went to the training venues and competition venues together. But it, it was it was pretty special. I can remember, I you know I, I was tall, um, and you know. I, I could jump up and touch with my outstretched hand the rim of a basketball uh, net. And one day we were in sort of messing around and, and in came a, one of the Soviet athletes, a guy called Borsov. Sorry, Borsov was a high jumper. So he watched these swimmers sort of grunting and groaning and trying to touch the, the rim. And he backed up about seven or eight steps, ran at it, jumped, kicked the rim, and then, you know, was able to land on his feet. <laughs> so we said, oh my goodness, that's, that's a jump. Incredible, yeah. And I guess security wasn't the same back in that era, anywhere near that level. Did you guys feel a sense of the security, concern about security among the Olympics, among the officials in the... In the Olympic Village at the venues? No, not, not at all. It was really, I mean, the it was a security it was never even called security. It was, it was more crowd control and to keep, mm. you know, sort of the uh, Italians from bothering the athletes uh, while they were training or trying to relax. So, but no, it was not, uh, it, it, there was no concern about physical security of any sort. Mm. And, and I guess... I guess your experience at the games is sort of what gave you the bug to get involved with the Canadian Olympic Committee and the eventually the IOC. I think that's where it started for sure. Um, I'd been to the, uh, the Pan Ams in 1959 in Chicago, but that that didn't have the same cohesiveness that the Olympics did uh, the, the following year, and 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 to a certain extent the Commonwealth Games two years after that, but. Uh, no, it was 
so much fun that when I finished uh, competing, I, I sort of said to myself, you know, if, if there's anything I can do to, to make it possible for other athletes to have that kind of experience, count me in. I'm happy to do whatever is necessary. And you've had quite a, a lengthy career involving uh, the Olympics. I mean, how many you've, you've been to pretty much every game since 60, I guess, or maybe not 64 in Tokyo. No, no, I was thinking of going to Tokyo, but uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, the the games in Tokyo in those days were in, uh, I think, late October or November. Right, middle of school. And by then, I'd already started in law, and I thought, mm. you know, if I were going to be a, a swimming coach or something like that, uh, maybe two Olympics would look better on the uh, on the CV than one, but I'm not. And so one was enough, and I... I uh, I passed up uh, Tokyo, and it was you know, statistically it's uh, very difficult because if I stayed as far ahead of the fellow that I beat in the Commonwealth Games in '62, I'd have won the Olympics. Now they got he got better, and I'm not sure I would have got that much better. But that was uh, you know there there are lies, damned lies, and statistics, as you know, and that's right. a, that's a, yeah. a fun statistic. That's one of my favorite expressions. I think it was Benjamin Disraeli that uh, came up with that one. Um, it, it, just uh, wondering about the that era in the Olympics. That that was was that just before the uh, the East Germans were in, started into the the steroids, the drugs. So it, was it basically a clean game in the in the sixty a clean game and until uh, we reached the next decade? When did that uh, start changing? Where we really discovered that the uh, uh, drug testing was uh, becoming uh, flagrant at the well, games. Well, it was an interesting uh, situation at that time because there were actually no sport rules that prohibited what we now call doping. And so if you if you took illegal drugs like, you know, heroin or something like that, which <laughs> wouldn't do much to improve your performance anyway, uh, that was the only legislation. And it was only because during the Rome Games, in the cycling road race that a, that a Danish cyclist collapsed and died and, and had been taking amphetamines, and which led the old boys on the IOC to say, oh, this is not good. You're, supposed, you're not supposed to come to the uh, Olympics and die because you're using drugs. So they formed a medical commission and a, and a, a doping and biochemistry subcommission and, and Said, look, we, we better find out what athletes are taking and and uh, and prohibit them from using anything that uh, could be dangerous. And that's what led to the first what everyone calls the you know the capital L list of prohibited substances. And, and so the for, which, started, for which games? Hmm? For which games? The did they, have that started, they first started testing at the 1968 Winter Games in Grenoble, and they've tested tested in every games uh, since then. And you've been at the Olympics pretty much every every game since the, the '60s. Um, maybe missing one or two at most. Uh, is, do you have any that are kind of the uh, the fondest games for you? Uh, aside from Rome being where you participated, and that would obviously be in a different uh, a different level, maybe. But uh, just as a uh, an official, an Olympic official, uh, there are there any? Is there a winter game and a summer games uh, that kind of stand out as being uh, spectacular? Uh, maybe Vancouver. Uh, given that there was your home country, what what do you think about uh, 
when you think about that, what do you come up with? Well, they're, they're, all, they're all special in their own way. And it's, a, I mean, it's not a great analogy, but if you think of the, whatever the Olympic program is of the, you know, the 28 sports in the summers and seven in the winter, that's kind of your hamburger. And, and what makes the hamburger different and, and more pleasurable is, is the sauce. And that's the, uh, you know, the, the games in Lillehammer as uh, winter games in a small Nordic town were, were pretty special. The Vancouver was too, uh, for different reasons, also Calgary. And you have uh, games, uh, games like Barcelona were, were pretty special. Uh, so they're all different and they're all fun. And, uh, I, I wouldn't have missed any of them. Hmm. All right, let's uh, let's touch back on the, your time at McGill, uh, Dick. We didn't uh, get into the whole McGill experience yet. Uh, I'm curious, um, uh, what was your first impression when you when you first arrived on campus as a McGill student? Do you remember that f- the first day on campus? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the first and. and lasting impression uh, was was being at the curry pool at that high school meet and and it was a great facility uh, in the days when it was a 25 yard pool as opposed to meters now it was recognized as, as a fast pool uh, you could you could you could um, have very good times and, and I always remembered that and always enjoyed uh, swimming at McGill and we had a, a very good team. The, um, the sort of the star uh, in those days was a fellow called Cameron Grout, who, who was an LCC graduate. And, and he was, uh, I think by then, if not Canadian champion, on the verge of it. And uh, so he was, he was the star. I was, I was kind of a rube. I didn't know the big city uh, uh, at all. And, and was uh, it was young for... Then I, I I didn't get put back when I came from BC. I went from grade nine in BC to grade ten in in uh, Montreal, and so I was I finished my almost my entire first year at McGill uh, as a sixteen year old. Hmm. So the, the 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 swimming kind of saved whatever might have passed for my my social life uh, as I got used to the big city. Did you find that intimidating, being a 16-year-old on a university campus? No, not so much. Uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're smart enough at, at 16 to do, uh, you know, first-year courses. That's not, that was never much of an issue. And the, uh, the swim team was kind of the social milieu in which uh, I operated. And, and I, was, I was okay in that because I was, uh, I guess I would have been, number two person to uh, Cameron Grout at the time. So whatever, whatever races he didn't win or, or enter in the, uh, in the collegiate program, uh, I swam in and, and I won those. So it was, uh, you, you kind of make your, your way on the basis of, uh, of your performance uh, at that point. So it, it was when fun. I, I always liked it. When I talk to athletes uh, currently on the McGill campus, um, uh, it, it seems to me that um, their almost their whole life or their social life really uh, evolves revolves around the the team that they're on. It's it's uh, a big part of their life on campus. Uh, I gather that's what it was like then for you. Yeah, not 
probably as much uh, as it would be if you were in a team sport. I mean, you know, there's a swimming team, but but all the events are are, are individual events, other than a couple of relays. So it's a, it's a somewhat different uh, level of bonding that you that you would have uh, in that kind of a sport compared to football or hockey or basketball. Um, uh, one of my favorite multi movies was The Paper Chase about the law school. Um, I think it was around 1973 it came out, so this was after you graduated. But uh, with John Hausman, who was a uh, won an Academy Award for playing uh, Professor Kingsfield as the, the the top law professor, I'm wondering if you saw that movie and how realistic that was to law school. Your experience at law school? Well, I, I certainly saw the movie, and it it, um, it, it was a good story in that respect uh, but it, it wasn't that wasn't the kind of uh, participatory uh, exercise that we had at McGill it was that was, that was more lectures and and uh, occasional Q and A's but not the uh, the kind of grilling that uh, uh, that the uh, the star got and uh, I think you know I used to think when I heard in undergraduate uh, years uh, the law students just moaning and complaining about all the work they did I thought that ended up being a secret that you had to tell everyone on campus how hard you were working, but <laughs> they didn't want to get around it, how easy it actually was right. if you paid attention. <laughs> uh, uh, was uh, Were there any courses that uh, kind of stand out that you think is, um, you know, a favorite course? Like when I went to McGill, they were all kind of tough for me. I wasn't the, uh, the brainiac that uh, most of my uh, fellow students were, but... Um, I remember I had one professor in sociology, just, it was amazing. I was so motivated to go to that class and to interact. Did you ever find that that experience with any specific classes or professors um, uh, that, that uh, you found, you know, inspirational, you want, you really enjoyed their class? Well, for, for the most part, all our professors were really good. But I mean, if you had a chance to study constitutional law under F.R. Scott, he was a constitutional expert. He was actually at the uh, the cutting edge of Canadian constitutional law. Um, he he did the Ron Corelli and Duplessis case. He did the Lady Chatterley's Lover case. Not only teaching and developing political institutions in Canada, like the the, the CCF, the forerunner of the NDP, but he was on his feet in court with with tough constitutional cases. So. That was a, a figure that everybody looked up to, and and, uh, and so if you have to pick your number one, that would be mine. Mm-hmm. Outside of uh, swimming in classes, were you involved in other things on campus, uh, student clubs, uh, uh, any other activities, or was it pretty much uh, school and, and swimming? Uh, sort of as as an undergraduate, pretty much that. Uh, when I got back into law, I wasn't doing international swimming anymore so i didn't uh, I, I didn't have to practice as hard as i uh, i would have if i were doing that and my specialties were sprints so you didn't have to uh, you had to be fast rather than uh, enduring uh, so what i what i did do was uh, start playing squash for competitive exercise and so i played squash for mcgill for i guess through at law which was the the three years academic years and the bar admission year and uh, we won a couple of uh, intercollegiate championships not not because i was good i was i was 
not talented, but I was fit. So I would I would play it sort of number four on a five mm-hmm. uh, five was- person team. But we, we won uh, the, the OQAA as it was in those days championships uh, a number of times. I was unaware that you were on the squash team. Uh, maybe we'll have to re- revise your Hall of Fame plaque. <laughs> mention the, the squash experience. <laughs> well, we'll list. We'll we'll tell it. We'll we'll miss, mention that you were uh, number five on that uh, six man group. <laughs> uh, oh, number four. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, were you, um, I, I'm wondering if you uh, um, had uh, like when you guys wore the the swimming gear, was there a McGill sign, a McGill logo? I, I know that the athletes today really love playing for the McGill emblem, the McGill logo. I've talked to coaches, and they they really talk about uh, how much they feel the passion that the, the athletes have for swimming for the university. Did you guys have a McGill crest on your on your uh, swim trunks? Uh, did you uh, have a some sort of McGill gear back then? It really wasn't, uh, I guess the uh, the thing to do to have gear like they have nowadays, jackets. Yeah, we, we had, we had, you know, we had, we had sweatsuits so that, you know, between events you didn't get cold, but, uh, I don't, we didn't have, uh, uh McGill crests on, on the swim trunks in those days. And, and, uh, did you wear the, uh, the caps that these swimmers sometimes wear today? Uh, the, uh, m- most of them are, are strictly worn by women, but you do see the occasional guy wearing a, a, a swim cap. And, uh, I'm just wondering about habits like that, shaving down. Did you guys shave down before meets like they do now? Uh, I think, you know, before something like the Olympics, uh, we were very daring and I think we shaved our legs. <laughs> but <laughs> that was about it. And, and, uh. And we didn't. It was before the days before the, the swim hats for men, and and before the goggles that everybody wears now. Hmm. Yeah, it, it it always amazes me how uh, it's a big event when they all have to shave down. It's some sort of ritual that they go through, and they only do it for the big meets. Uh, at least the way I understand yeah. it, at, at, for the McGill team anyway. Um, it's it's a big ritual that they they all shave down, and supposedly it makes you feel faster. Uh, how much more of a split second you gain in the in the actual swim, I don't know, but it, I guess it does have the, the, the sensation of swimming faster. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, a lot of sport is mental, so, you know, the better you feel, the better you're likely to perform. Right. Now, uh, speaking of uh, performing, uh, did you find that the... Um, uh, the practices, the training that you uh, went through in those days, uh, there's something about that that kind of transferred, um, you transferred habits from that to your daily routine. Uh, do they help you develop um, something, a focus or a togetherness or something? Did, did you find that that kind of uh, affected the, the way you sort of lived life um, after your swimming career? Well, even at the time, it, it, it affects the, your 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 academic life in the sense that while you're swimming, uh, you're not doing your reading and homework. So uh, it, it, it caused me in particular to, to make good use of the time that I had for, for studying. And I was I was gifted with a fairly retentive memory. So, you know, it was not not that hard, but it, it, it does teach you to organize your time and, and figure out your priorities. And, and those are all transferable skills. And, uh, you know, they, they stayed with me all my life. Yeah, well, I hear that a lot about uh, time management from the student athletes uh, today. That uh, they, That's the one thing that they have to learn quite quickly when you're 
a full-time student and you're managing, uh, you know, playing on a varsity team where it takes 25 to 35 hours a week, something in that range. It's almost like a full-time job now. Uh, was, was it the same kind of time commitment uh, in, in your area when they, uh, did you put in that kind of time uh, on into the swimming? It would, uh, it would certainly have been during the uh, academic year, uh, a couple of hours a day. So the, that's you know, say ten hours, uh, ten hours uh, of in pool uh, stuff. But there were you know there was some uh, land training and, and and other stuff like that. But nowhere near the the amount of, of the load of swimming that uh, the, these poor kids have today. Right, and the um, uh, the move from being a student into the working world did you find that uh, that adjustment uh, relatively smooth how did you make that jump from uh, being a student uh, all of a sudden to going into the working world I'd, I'd say I mean in a sense you work toward that uh, transition all through your college uh, experience so and in those days there was no money government or otherwise uh, in the sports system. So basically, when you finished university, you finished your uh, your your high performance uh, sport. And if, if you're a swimmer, you start at age eight or nine, something like that. So you know you've done it for ten or twelve uh, years, and and you know, it, it's time to time to to change your life and get on with the next phase. So I I looked, I enjoyed the swimming, and and uh, looked forward to it when I was doing it. Um, but I also look forward to being uh, a professional and, and getting to work and and, uh, and and you know dealing with the next phase of, of one's life. I've always sort of felt sorry for athletes who really don't have a goal after their sport and, and they spend an inordinate part of their lives, you know, rubbing the gold medal or whatever medal it was that they they got. And I think that's kind of sad that the, that they have not uh, prepared themselves to for the, for the next phase. Hmm. Um, moving on to your next phase, uh, you know, you had quite a, a distinguished um, uh, career uh, outside of or the regular work, you know, internationally with the IOC and the various sports uh, organizations. Uh, I think the last count I had you listed as being in six different sports hall of fame um, and member of order of Canada. And uh, you were listed by time magazine among the top uh, hundred of the world's most influential people. Uh, if I remember right, you were listed in a, in a category of science scientists and thinkers. Um, just wondering what your thought about uh, being selected in, in, in that unique category. Uh, uh, that, that, that sounds like you can fool some of the people all of the time. <laughs> was that like a special honor to you or you found that more amusing than anything or the uh, like a, it's a, quite a prestigious magazine, obviously Time Magazine to be listed in their top 100? Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, you don't you don't do any of these things so that you get listed in Time Magazine. I mean, it's kind of fun to be to get the recognition, but uh, I, I think if you're just out hunting for titles or awards, uh you're not you're not doing the right thing for the right reason right and the um 
the other area I wanted to touch on was um, you served two terms as the chancellor of McGill University. How did that come about where you started um, uh, as initial chancellor and what was that experience like? What does a chancellor do? What, uh, Aside from presiding over the graduation ceremonies, uh, maybe you can give us some insight well, it, here. It was kind of a, an overall process. I mean, I basically had two main interests in my life, one of which is McGill and, and you know the, the education that that represents, and the other was the sport. Uh, in the case of McGill, I think by the time I was finished law, I was I was on the uh, the sort of the local branch of the what was then called the McGill Graduate Society, and now the McGill Alumni Association. And I did a whole bunch of jobs, uh, you know, including homecoming and whatnot. Uh, chair of the McGill Fund Council, and and then I became a governor of the university. And after a few years, when uh, I think it was Hugh Hallward uh, retired as, or, or maybe Alex Patterson retired as uh, as chair of the board of governors, uh, I got asked to do that. And so I did that for five years, and I said, you know, that's if you're chair of the board, uh, five years is plenty. Uh, you've got to move on so that you don't get ingrained or, or entrenched in, in things. And just about that time, um, the position of chancellor uh, opened up, and it was uh, Greta Chambers had come to the end of her term, and um, I got uh, appointed as as chancellor uh, for a five-year term. And, and uh, I always used to joke that the, the reason they made me do it again was to, just so that I would get it right. So I, but I had a, a, a lot of fun. As, as a, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, position, more of, more of influence than, than uh, power. You're, you're kind of like the governor general of the university. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's honorific. You do preside at convocations. You preside at uh, joint meetings of uh, the Senate and, and the Board of Governors and, and the alumni and, and so forth. And you get to meet an awful lot of wonderful people who uh, are, are doing wonderful jobs either within the university or, or outside of it, but in support of the kind of activities uh, for which McGill is a champion. And speaking of the honorific side, uh, you preside over the, as chancellor, uh, over the graduation ceremonies and the honorary uh, doctorates is the uh, the thing that interests me. Uh, were there any uh, uh, honored individuals that, uh, you know, that you gave them the, the, the doctorate and the kind of... Uh, impressed you that you were able to be, preside over a ceremony giving an honorary doctorate to someone? Was there someone that kind of stands out that uh, of over the the many that you've given out? Oh gosh, you know, I mean, anybody who gets a, an honorary degree from McGill is 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 special, and so having been either as chair of the board or, or chancellor, the, the number of uh, extraordinary people that have. Uh, come across the stage for that purpose is is, uh, is amazing. But, I mean, the kinds of uh, people that, uh, that were, you know, particular pleasures to, to 
uh, award a degree. I mean, they included John Bellivo for, for mm. one in, in sport. Uh, Harry Mosher, who's Aislinn, uh, my classmate in commerce, John Cleghorn, uh, two or three former or current uh, governors general of Canada. Uh, you know, uh, Fred Lowey, who retired from Concordia. Rick Hansen, the, the man in motion. Uh, Kent right. Nagano. I mean, they're just all kinds of extraordinary people to, for, for whom it was a, an honor for me to to, to uh, preside at, at uh, the uh, awarding of their honorary doctorates. M- might have been the best part of being the chancellor, perhaps. Well, I used to, I used to joke that I said, you know, I, I started off at McGill being worried about getting one degree, and now I'm giving out thousands every year. <laughs> it's a a real uh, change of role. Right. Uh, so, uh, sort of looking at the whole McGill experience, um, uh, is, is there a way to capsule how that kind of uh, prepared you for your, your afterlife at McGill, your post, post-McGill career? Is there something that kind nope. of uh, you can put a finger on that um, that, that experience prepared you for something? Uh, in your future? Kind of a tough existential question. Yeah, I I would say that I guess one of the the values you pick up is is that if you have drawn from the you know, the wealth the well of experience that that is available to you through uh, an institution like McGill, you have an obligation to put back into that well at least as much as you took out and and that is it, it's a it, it, it's a moral obligation that uh, I've been happy to uh, to assume and, and uh, I must say I've enjoyed everything that I've done uh, at McGill some of it is is you know more substantive than than others but you know even things like sitting on statutory selection committees for, you know, appointments to full professorship at McGill, which is a, a hard run gauntlet for, uh, for any academic is, uh, is remarkable because you get a chance to look at uh, the uh, CVs of some extraordinary scholars that, that have uh, actually made earth changing uh, discoveries or, have uh, accomplished earth-shaking uh, deeds that that have advanced humanity. So, uh, no matter what you do, it's it's it, it continues your education and your appreciation of what uh, extraordinary people there are, not only at McGill but uh, but elsewhere. Um, what do you wish that uh, you? What do you know now that you wish you knew as a McGill student? Is there something out there that you would have said? Geez, I wish I had known that when I was back in school. Anything that comes to mind there? Well, I think if I were to turn the clock back, especially with all of the uh, international involvement that I've had uh, through mostly through sport. It, it would be that I would spend more time learning other languages, and because uh, I think that is uh, that 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 ability to communicate is uh, is very valuable. I mean, l- luckily, 
in the Olympic uh, world, the you know the two official languages are uh, French and English, and so you know you can converse uh, with people. You don't need to uh, you don't need to have uh, simultaneous translation, and, and you know your exchange of ideas, and uh, probably not have been quite as lazy in terms of my uh, my academics as uh, I was at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think perhaps all of us were, or a lot of us were probably in that um, in, in, in that realm, having uh, wished that they had applied themselves. Certainly I was in that world. I wish I had applied myself better. Um, and it's funny you mentioned language, because I think about that myself too. My, my grandmother came from Europe, somewhere in the, near Austria, and she spoke eight different languages. And here we struggle in Quebec to speak to, or the, at least we are, we, politically we argue about speaking to or being forced to speak to. Uh, it just seems that um, the way they do it over in Europe where everyone speaks different languages and how, how much that helps you in life when you travel, you, you would think it would just be oh, unnatural. Sure. And, and, and you work, absolutely. I don't know, we, we, we live on a continent where, you know, unlike in Europe where if you only speak four languages, you're kind of borderline dummy. And and here we think it's a major accomplishment to speak one language moderately well. Really? So we've got, to, we've got things to learn. And yeah, you mentioned just uh, a few minutes ago that if you went to go back in time, let me kind of ask you something along that uh, uh, route. Uh, what's something that, uh, uh, like if you, if you could go back in time and spend a day as a McGill student now, by going uh, into a time machine, walk us through what your uh, your perfect dream day would be on campus. Is there something that you can think of that would be a typical perfect day walking through the campus? Well, I think what would be really fun if you could, if you could do the time machine would be to to go in and listen to lectures in fields that are not your own. Hmm. No, I mean I I'm probably a something of a historian monkey, I would love to sit in and audit uh, history courses. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but whatever it is, you're learning something and, and it becomes uh, an acquired taste. And I think one of the things that I've learned is, is that you, you learn every day and you should hope to learn something every day that you didn't know. I, uh, at one convocation where I was speaking, I said, you know, learning is not compulsory, nor is survival. And sort of little little jolts like that for uh, for the students say, look, you, you think you're, you're getting a degree here today and your education is over. It's not. It's just beginning. And what we hope is that we've been able to uh, spark a light that will shine forever for you. Thanks for joining us today. Alma Matters is presented by the Redbird Sports Shop, the official retail store of McGill Athletics and Recreation. Shop for McGill Apparel at redbirdsportshop.ca. If you enjoyed this episode of our podcast, please subscribe. This is Earl the Pearl Zuckerman signing off. This has been Alma Matters, a podcast by McGill Athletics and Recreation. Interested in sharing your story? 
or have a question for our host, get in touch by following us on Facebook or Instagram.